Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prendle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Meredith Broussard is a data journalist working in the field of algorithmic accountability. She writes about the ways in which race, gender, and ability bias seep into the technology we use every day. So what happens when we build a machine learning system is we take a whole bunch of data, we plunk it into the computer, and we say, computer, make a model. Computer says, okay, makes a model. The model shows the mathematical patterns in the data. There is bias in the past. There is historical bias. People have unconscious bias. And all of those patterns are what the computer is seeing. And all of those patterns are what the computer is reproducing. We'll discuss all of this and much more on this episode of Examining Ethics. Before I play this interview, I wanted to let you know that this will be my last episode of Examining Ethics. I'm moving on to another position at another university. And while I'm excited about my new job, I'm sad to say goodbye to this show and to the listeners who have supported us for the last seven years. This little podcast has been maybe the most important thing I've ever made in my professional life, and I am just filled with appreciation for everyone that has worked on the show with me. My co-creator, Sandra Burton, my co-pilot, Eleanor Price, and my Greencastle collaborator, Kate Berry. Thanks also to Evie Brogius for designing our logo, and to Brian Price for his sound advice, pun very much intended. I am also grateful to all of my guests, and I'm most grateful to you, the listeners. If you want to reach out to me, send a line to examiningethics at gmail.com. My colleagues will make sure that I see your messages. You can also reach out to the same address if you're curious about what the future holds for the Examining Ethics podcast. Let's get to this interview about bias in the tech world with Meredith Broussard. Welcome to the show, Meredith Broussard. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. So we're here to discuss your new book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. So just give us a brief broad strokes overview of your project here. I am a data journalist. That means uh, I focus on finding stories and numbers and using numbers to tell stories. And specifically, one of the things I do is I build artificial intelligence in order to commit acts of investigative reporting. Now, when I started doing this a few years ago, it was very hard to explain to people what it meant. So I kind of drifted into explaining artificial intelligence. Uh, So that's one of the things that I do in the book. But then I also connect the technical sides of AI to larger social issues. So I write about something I call techno-chauvinism, which is a kind of pro-technology bias that says that technological solutions are superior to others. And I don't think that's true. I think we should use the right tool for the task, whether that's you know a computer or a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap. Instances of glitches, like where a computer you know does something that is racist or sexist or ableist, we tend to dismiss it. Like, oh, it's just a blip. It's just a momentary glitch. It's something we can fix in the code. What I argue in the book is that we shouldn't be techno-chauvinists. We should look at these kinds of incidents as indicators that we need to address something about society as well as something about the code. If computers or technology are just tools, how is it possible for them to be 
racist, sexist, or ableist, those things that we normally associate with people? It has to do with the way that machine learning systems are made. So the AI systems that we have nowadays are usually machine learning systems. It makes it sound like there's a little brain inside the computer, and there is not. Uh, It's just math. It's very complicated, beautiful math. So what happens when we build a machine learning system is we take a whole bunch of data, we plunk it into the computer, and we say, computer, make a model. Computer says, okay, makes a model. The model shows the mathematical patterns in the data. And then what we can do with this model is it's very powerful. We can make decisions, we can make predictions, we can generate new text, generate new images, generate new video or audio. That's what generative AI is. So the model is a very sophisticated pattern recognition and reproduction machine. It's not doing anything magic. So There is bias in the past. There is historical bias. People have unconscious bias. And all of those patterns are what the computer is seeing. And all of those patterns are what the computer is reproducing. So yeah, let's let's get into the other thing you were just talking about, which is techno chauvinism. Help us better understand what it means and then how it intersects with the machine learning biases that you were just talking about. So techno-chauvinists believe things like computers are more objective or neutral or unbiased. But this is not true. Computers are just machines that do math. They are nothing more. They are nothing less. They are literally computing. And we tend to forget this because humans have this really lovely tendency to anthropomorphize things, right? We attribute agency to our phones, to our computers, because we use these devices so much that we get attached to them and we you know, start imagining things about them because we have wonderful imaginations. But a computer is just a machine. And so when you start believing in the computer as a beloved device or as a, you know, some kind of savior, when you start believing that quantitative methods are superior to qualitative methods, then you start veering into techno chauvinism. Really, again, it's about the right tool for the tasks. Some tasks is sometimes we need quantitative methods, sometimes we need qualitative methods, sometimes we need both, sometimes we need them both iteratively. It's not about one or the other. There are chapters in your book that outline the ways that bias in tech plays out in places like the criminal justice system, education, um, but then also for identity categories like ability, gender, and race. And we can't cover all of those, but trust me, having read the book, they are fascinating. So I I encourage people to read the whole book. But I was wondering, could you just pick one of those areas that's like your favorite and help us understand how bias plays out there? Oh, you mean my favorite form of oppression? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. What a horrible way to word that. That's the most fun. No, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I will give you, uh, let me give you the example from the book that I think really well illustrates my point. And this is an examination of mortgage approval algorithms by the markup. The markup is a really terrific algorithmic accountability uh, journalism organization. And they put out a story a few years ago about the hidden bias in mortgage approval algorithms, because people really want to automate every feature of banking. And as we know, getting a mortgage or getting a home loan is a major way of building intergenerational wealth. But when the markup looked at uh, automated mortgage approval algorithms, they found that these algorithms were biased 
that they were 40 to 80% more likely to deny borrowers of color as opposed to their white counterparts. And in some metro areas, this disparity was more than 250%. So why is this? Well, the math that the, or the patterns that the mortgage approval models were picking up on were patterns of historical bias. So if we look at it sociologically, we can recall that there were practices in the U.S. like redlining. The U.S. has a very long history of residential segregation. Uh, we have a long history of financial discrimination, which plays out in lending. So when you feed a computer with data about who's gotten mortgages in the past, it's going to look like not many people of color. And then what you're telling the model to do is you're telling the model to continue making, making decisions like the ones it has made or seen in the past. So you're asking the model to continue this pattern of discrimination. Now, mathematically, it would be possible to put a thumb on the scale and make mortgage approval algorithms more inclusive. It would be possible to make sure that these algorithms are giving equal access to all borrowers. Is anybody doing that? Not to the best of my knowledge. So in order to kind of help mitigate this bias or, or these, these problems that come with techno chauvinism, is it something where we more need to be aware that it exists and be suspicious of most things from computers and tech? Or can we also attack it from the other side and try to like teach computers teach computers more equitable ways of, of doing these things? Well, we could do both of those things. Those are both great ideas. I mean, absolutely, we need to look at sociological factors as well as technical factors when we build computational systems. We're at a really interesting point of our development where all the problems that are easy to solve with technology have been solved. Like word processing, for example, like that was a relatively easy problem to solve with technology. And guess what? Now we have word processing all over the globe. We have it for most languages. We know how to do it. Like it is more or less solved. But the harder problems that we're left with are socio-technical problems, right? So when you build something like a social network, it's a socio-technical system. It's not just about the technology, but computer scientists tend to build these things as if they're just about the technology. And so we need a really fundamental uh, shift in people's thinking about how we build technology. And another thing we can do is we can look at incidents of AI discriminating and use that as an indicator for where we need to make some dramatic social progress in addition to, you know, not trusting the technology entirely to make decisions for us. So the case of the mortgage approval algorithms is a good one. Another thing I read about in the book is the way that racism in medicine gets embedded in technological systems. So there are lots of ways that Racist beliefs have made their way into the medical system. And one of these is kind of the, the idea that race is somehow biological, right? So race is a social construct. 
but in medicine, in science, it sometimes gets treated as if it were biological. And that leads to all kinds of problems. So for example, uh, there, until 2021, there was this calculation called GFR, glomerular filtration rate that was used to uh, determine when a patient was sick enough to get onto the kidney transplant list, right? So GFR measures your kidney function. And until 2021, Black people were given an additional multiplier in this GFR calculation because it was thought that Black people had greater muscle mass than other kinds of people. And the result of this was that Black patients had to be sicker in order to qualify for the kidney transplant list. And so this racist calculation, you know, this race correction was embedded in the mathematical formula that was used to calculate GFR. It was embedded in every algorithm used by every lab everywhere in the world. These kinds of things exist. And when we just go in and build technological systems that are based on existing human systems, we end up reproducing those kinds of harms. I am delighted to say that in 2021, the GFR formula changed. Uh, it no longer includes that calculation for race. And so millions of people uh, now have access to life-saving treatment because that formula was changed. So yeah, it's heartening to hear about changes like that. But I'm wondering if there's a way to create technology that's not only maybe not racist, but anti-racist. Yes, it is possible. Is anybody doing it? I would definitely point listeners to a number of thinkers on this subject. My NYU colleague, Charlton McElwain, uh, has a fantastic book called Black Software. Listeners, if you haven't read Safia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, you definitely need to go get that one right away. I also highly rent recommend Ruha Benjamin's book, Race After Technology, and her newer one, Viral Justice. Joy Bolomini of the Algorithmic Justice League, I believe, has a book coming out soon. Uh, Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction. And, oh, Kashmir Hill has a new book called Your Face Belongs to Us, which is about facial recognition. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the surveillance thing a little bit, too, because that was another another sort of point of hope that you bring up is that you think that public opinion is sort of turning against surveillance culture and turning against all of these cameras capturing our faces all of the time. But at the same time, my house is the only house in the neighborhood that doesn't have like a ring camera. And so it's like, is it too, is it too late? <laughs> Even if people decided, okay, we're going to turn off the ring camera. Is it too late for that tide turning? You know what I'm surprised by? I'm surprised there isn't more ring camera vandalism, right? Because you can defeat a ring camera with a post-it note. Like it's not that hard to interfere with it. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that things have lasted as long as they have. One of the ways that people tend to talk about technology and especially surveillance technology is they tend to talk about it as if it's inevitable, as if it's something that we have to sit back and let happen to us. And that is not at all true. We do not have to live in a surveillance state. We do not have to consent to our data being exploited, being purchased and sold. We do need more comprehensive privacy legislation uh, at the federal level. 
but it is not inevitable that big tech should have control of our data. So what brought you to this work? Why why is this something that you you care about? I came to it as a journalist. One of the traditional functions of the media is to hold power accountable. And in today's world, algorithms are increasingly being used to make decisions on our behalf. And so that accountability function has to transfer onto algorithms and their makers. Uh, So the kind of data journalism that I do is called algorithmic accountability reporting. So holding algorithms and their makers accountable. I started my career as a computer scientist. I quit to become a journalist. And I often build technology in order to investigate social phenomena. I also do a lot of reverse engineering technology. So, you know, somebody will come to me and say, all right, I want to know how this thing works. And I will say, oh, well, you know, that's a system that does blah, blah, blah. It must work like blah, 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 because all of these things pretty much work the same. So it's like a mechanic can look at a car, even if you haven't worked on the car before, you kind of know how motors work. So you can kind of figure out what's happening under the hood. So it's the same thing with software. Software is constructed like a motor is constructed. And when you understand like how software is made, then you can just look at software and say, oh, this must be doing this, this, and this. If you want to find more about our guests' other work, download a transcript, or learn about some of the things we mentioned in today's episode, visit prindleinstitute.org backslash examiningethics. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Our logo is created by Evie Brocious. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics. I'm not good at goodbyes. All right.